Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity Company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. From the Milton Metz studio in the Radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with co-host WFIU, WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. And a new nationwide survey from the health insurance provider Cigna finds that nearly half of Americans suffer from feelings of loneliness and isolation. But it's not the retired or the elderly that are the most lonely. It's Generation Z, those adults that are between 18 and 22, and millennials, adults that are between 23 and 37, that scored higher on the UCLA loneliness scale than the average American. Study also found that social media use alone is not a predictor of loneliness. So, what's attributing uh, to all this loneliness around the around the nation? Uh, this week on Noon Edition, we have three guests who are going to talk about this with uh, Sarah and I. We have Amy Gonzalez, an assistant professor in the IU Media School here on the Bloomington campus. Julianne Holt Lundstadt is a professor of psychology at Brigham Young University. Uh, in Provo. She's in Salt, joining us from Salt Lake City today on the phone. And Nancy Stockton is here in the studio. Nancy is the director of IU Counseling and Psychological Services on the IU Bloomington campus. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, or you can join us on the phone by calling 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. So, Amy and Nancy, thanks for being in the studio. And, Julianne, thanks for taking time out of your day to join us from Salt Lake City. Thanks for having us. So we're going to – I want to start the program uh, by asking Nancy Stockton, who works with a lot of students and sees students um, probably every day during the the school year at IU. Uh, Does this study surprise you? Uh, No, Bob, I would say it it doesn't. I would estimate that maybe between um, 40 and 50 percent of CAPS clients, students who use CAPS, are troubled to some degree by loneliness, uh, that loneliness is at least part of the reason that brings them to CAPS. Mm -hmm. And is this growing in, in your experience or has it been pretty constant? I, my, my sense is it's relatively constant. I think it's something that I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. I think it's somewhat magnified by social media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Amy, in your uh, research, what, what have you found? Does it surprise you? Um, hmm, a little bit, mm-hmm. although it was interesting to hear that the, the, the age range are those associated, most associated with tech use, but then they didn't find tech use to be implicated specifically. That doesn't surprise me in that the research is really mixed. This is something that people in communication have been trying to study for, you know, the last few decades yeah. um, pretty consistently. And, and, and for every study that you find that there's some sort of negative psychological effect for, with, associated with social media use, you'll find one that says there's a positive effect and that it connects us. And so yeah. it's, well, that's it's complicated. Yeah, it's, right. it, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure it's not simple, but it's just you know, from sort of an outside observer looking in, you know, you see people staring at their phones, you see people staring at screens. It just it seems sort of um, intuitive that this would be mm-hmm. a problem. So uh, I want to ask Julianne to to join us. I know you have done a lot of work in this area too. That. Um, and I believe you've said at a recent convention that loneliness and social isolation may represent a greater public health hazard than um, many other hazards that we think about. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So my research has really uh, focused on uh, the implications for health risk. And in particular, uh, I have uh compiled all the evidence on in in terms of linking this to risk for premature mortality and uh, as well as uh, 
contrasted this with other well-established risk factors. And uh, what we find is that the evidence that uh, for the for um, establishing social isolation and loneliness as a risk factor for premature mortality uh, is, uh, in, in fact, stronger than things such as uh, obesity, physical inactivity, uh, and air pollution. So it does carry a significant health risk. I want to ask, Amy, you just briefly mentioned this, the idea about social media, but it, it like Bob said, it does sort of seem to run counter to what you might think with people who... And I guess in one way, do maybe you're isolated because you're on your phone so much, but then you're also connected with people. So is that sort of where the disconnect lies? Yeah. In research. And before I answer that, I should just step back and acknowledge the work that uh, Julianne's talking about. You know, there there is a wealth of evidence that says you know, it's really bad to be lonely. You know, so that mm-hmm. that that I get, and um, I think that's super important work. The the trick, the question is then, what what is the role of media in in kind of trying to understand these really big consequences of loneliness? And and exactly, so that's um, a, a lot of work, including some of my own, finds that in fact um, the connections that we're building online, especially if they're with people that are already in our networks, you know. Um, so I think of my son's relationship to my mom, who lives in California, is phenomenally more um, intimate and um, um, precious, well, it would always be precious, but um, uh, rich than it would have been in an era pre-FaceTime, right? And that's just one tiny example. Um, but, but again and again, the research finds that when we're talking to people that we already know and love online, that, that whether it's text, sometimes it's even more um, intimate with, when it's text or on the phone, but it's certainly not in any way impoverished just because you can't see the person. Um, so that's the piece that I think sometimes people don't appreciate. Um, so it matters, I guess, then how we're using social media. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, what I tend to talk about in class is the, the problem seems to be when we're, u- when we're getting online and just talking to people that we don't know. Um, that's when I think so, it can be problematic. Yeah, Julianne. I, I was just going to add, uh, because I was recently looking at some of the literature on specifically linking social media to loneliness. And I think what was just mentioned, how it's used, is, is very important. And so um, while the Cigna report didn't find any effect of media, um, social media use, it wasn't broken down by how it's used or who uses it. And data has shown that uh, depending on how it's used, it can lead to either positive or negative effects, uh, as well as there's even data to suggest that types of usage, so for instance, uh, you know, what we just described as very interactive and um, connecting with someone you know is very different than, say, scrolling your Facebook feed and just kind of passively uh, uh, looking at, at social media. But even um, in communication, uh, some data shows that this is different for older adults compared to younger adults, with evidence suggesting it's more beneficial to older adults uh, than younger adults. Um, And so this is really complex, and so it's really hard to just lump all of social media and all usage together in terms of, uh, you know, it's good or bad, when in reality it's very complex. Yeah, I I think that's uh, absolutely true. One interesting phenomenon that we hear from phenomena that we hear from from students sometimes, uh, they'll say it looks like I'm so well connected. I can be in the middle of a party and there's so many other students around, but inside I feel quite lonely. Or sometimes I feel like there might be a better party that I'm missing. I think the FOMA phenomena, the fear of missing out, uh, is a factor in students' subjective sense of loneliness. Uh, And and the the FOMA phenomenon is certainly enabled by social media. They look on Facebook. It looks like everybody else is having a great time. There's something I'm missing. Mm-hmm. I, I've heard several things I want to. I'd like to follow up on one. The one um, first thing was when Amy talked about FaceTime because that that is a seems to me a different kind of interaction for your son because he can see his 
grandmother and his grandmother can see him mm-hmm. than say just emailing back and forth or or even talking on the phone Is that it's yeah true? yes that's absolutely true um and there is a, a pretty substantial body of work um in an area or a theory called hyperpersonal model which talks about this idea that um in some ways, the intuitive idea that m- more information, being able to see someone and hear someone, is a richer connection, forms allows for a richer connection. On the other hand, um, this hyper-personal idea actually says sometimes in texting, for example, or maybe on the phone, because you can't see someone, because the, the exchange is... Um, asynchronous, right? It's not happening at the same time, that we have all of this extra time and mental energy to really carefully craft what we put out there. And that can lead to kind of these enhanced connections. So think maybe online dating and maybe one of the reasons that those relationships can be really uh, powerful is because you've spent all of this time um, thinking about who and what you want to present um, and and the effects of that then can lead to some really intense connections because um, yeah because you get to imagine that when the person typed I love you you know they weren't standing in line at the grocery store shoving it into their phone as they like paid, you know handed their credit card to the checkout they were just staring at their phone longingly thinking about you right we fill in the blanks in these ways that make the good stuff feel even better although the bad stuff can feel worse and it definitely brings up this FOMO effect in fact some of the work that talks about the downsides uh, when Facebook can be bad is when it evokes envy um, in particular so I think that's a really important point is it kind of depends on how how people relate to being online and whether or not it brings up these feelings of jealousy and insecurity because for people for whom that doesn't happen it can just be quite generally positive but for a lot of people it it can um, enhance the sense of being left out because people are putting their best foot forward right those are it's partly because of that stuff i'd never heard that term before is that is that new? FOMO. FOMO. It's been around a while, I think. FOMO. Fear yeah, of missing, missing out. out. The kids are using it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's just all relative. Yeah. You mentioned well, this idea of dating. Can, oh, go, go ahead. Oh. Go ahead, Julian. I was, I was just going to say, uh, I'll I'll add one more component to that in in that not only is there this social comparison where, uh, in essence, you see everybody's best self and. Uh, all of the exciting things they're doing, uh, which can potentially make you feel bad. Uh, But you can actually see, you know, your friends doing things without you and the recognition that you've been, you weren't invited and you were left out. And so social exclusion can also be enhanced through social media as well. I think that's true, and a kind of subset of students that have particular problems in this area, I think, are students who maybe have been bullied earlier in their life. A lot of attention uh, in our society focused on bullying. So students who may be almost recovered from bullying episodes in middle school or high school, but then when they, when they get here, they're on Facebook a lot, uh, they see their friends having fun uh, they, or at a party that maybe they weren't invited, it can kind of bring back all of the feelings associated uh, with an earlier period in their life. That seems like a direct connection between anxiety, especially social anxiety maybe, and, and loneliness. Is that, is that true? Yes, yes. I think for for some students, there's definitely a connection between social anxiety uh, and, and loneliness. We we always encounter a few students uh, each semester who are very afraid to leave their apartment. They they may go days without leaving their apartment or dorm room, partly because of, of uh, social anxiety, and then that kind of loneliness feeds on itself. Uh, the longer they isolate, the the more frightened they become. We're talking about uh, issues of isolation and loneliness and a recent study that came out that found that nearly half of Americans suffer from feelings of loneliness and isolation uh, here on Noon Edition today. If you want to give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348, we would love to have your calls with your comments or your questions. You can also send 
us questions for the show at news at indiana public media.org i wanted to follow up on that and this is just sort of you know one of those observations from looking at social media you know and reactions sometimes i'll see social media posts where somebody will talk about oh you know send a message to you know my bestie from all time and you know these kinds of things and it's like i always think when i see that well how do the rest of your friends feel when you're sending that? I mean, does that sort of add to this? I mean, are there, are there some things that you would suggest might help the uh, isolation and loneliness um, quotient if maybe some of these messages weren't so blatant and so obvious? I'm just sort of looking for a reaction, I guess. I'd be interested if Amy or Julianne has, <laughs> has research on that, uh, knows her research. Uh, I mean, I, I do know that there is research that the bullying that you mentioned, uh, when bullying is, the more public it is, the more painful it can be f- for a variety of reasons. So I, I don't know, that that's not quite bullying though, right? That's just kind of, yeah, the, the it's, it's new choosing. public nature. It's, it's like, you know, it's like when you choose up sides for a game and, you know, you're the last one chosen or something. Yeah. I mean, it brings that sort of feeling. And there there's this... Some people talk about that, that we live in an age of mass personal communication on the Internet, right? That we're taking these these what would otherwise be private inter- exchanges. You know, maybe one kid feels left out when the other two kids go off onto the playground together. So that phenomenon is not new, right? It's just the fact that it's so public then perhaps does amplify the consequences of that hurt. I, I think that that's, yeah, there's definitely work to suggest that broadly, although I don't know that the adolescent... Right. Um, uh, kind of uh, research us quite as well as maybe these other two do. Julianne, well, any reaction well, to that it, strange thought I had? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, of course, um, I, I don't have, you know, a, an empirical evidence of specifically um, that amplification. And I think that's actually one of the key challenges for uh, the field right now. And so as a health researcher, uh, you know, I've got, um, you know, my colleagues and I are, are gathering all this evidence and they're, uh, in essence, it's, we have robust evidence in terms of the health effects of this. And what I think is particularly troubling for me is when I see what appears to be what, you know, this amplification of things that we've seen in the past, does this mean amplification of health effects Mm. down the road? And one of the things to keep in mind is that this evidence that has established these health effects, they in essence uh, uh, look at how socially connected people are and then follow them over often decades uh, to see how this predicts uh, better or worse health, and who lives um, and who dies, and and whether that um, is predictive. And so, if you think about the fact that uh, these people are followed over decades, uh, that in essence, most of the research and most of the evidence that we have predates when this really became widely used. Um, if we use the year 2012 as kind of the marker of when uh, the majority of the population had smartphones, that's really only within the last six years. And so we really don't know the long-term health effects of this. And so, um, you know, it might be amplifying for good or for bad. And so what we might be seeing is, um, you know, a potential even uh, kind of uh, bimodal effects of, of, in essence, amplifying those health in terms of both physical and mental health effects as well. And Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Nancy. Well, I was just going to, in, in, in response to Bob's question about besties, uh, this is a non-empirical answer, but my sense in talking with a lot of students in a counseling context is they get used to the hyperbole. They get used to the hyperbole of hearing about besties, and it sort of goes in one ear and out the other. I don't think they pay a lot of attention to it. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's kind of relate. So, kind of joining your comments, then I think what I was going to add is not not only do we not have the long term research for these things, but I think we're also 
pretty adaptive and we're still adapting to this stuff. We don't know what the long-term consequences are, but we don't even know how we're going to be using it for the long-term yet. I don't think the dust has settled on what it means to even use a smartphone. I often think, you know, I imagine what TV consumption looked like five after five years after television was kind of reached a saturation point. And I'm guessing it was very different than the way people relate to TV today on average, because we haven't kind of figured out our own ways of moderating our use. You know, we're just like, ah, give it to me. (laughs) And so I think, but, but I think young people are pretty good at kind of quickly adapting to, um, yeah, I have a one study that's that actually looks at. I, I did a study where I had someone pick up a text and start texting in front of another young person to see if that would um, cause a sense of loneliness, um, and then we compared that to actual face-to-face ostracism, where we actually had two people start talking and refuse to talk to the third person, um, and then compared that to a third group, which was the control, where three people just talk together. And what we we find in general is that when you look at whether or not people say they felt ignored or excluded, there was this. Um, that the text-based exclusion, you know, my, me picking up my phone and just ignoring you no matter what you say, it's kind of right there flat in the, um, smack in the middle between feeling excluded in a, from a face-to-face conversation and being totally included. But when we look at the consequences of that, their sense of self, short-term effects of self-esteem or belonging, they really weren't that bad. People didn't feel that bad about it um, unless they hated technology. This was the moderator. If they were people who were already lonely and who already had this really negative relationship to technology, then it felt really bad. But in general, it seemed like young people kind of get that that's just what what they're all doing these days. It would be interesting to do the same study with people of a different age group. But mm-hmm. did that, does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Julian, I'm, I'm curious. This sort of goes off what you were saying, but just in terms of, so if somebody is experiencing this loneliness and feeling isolated, how do you break that cycle and help somebody like that? Because it, I could see where it would just lead to other things like severe anxiety and not wanting to leave your house. And is is there a way to, to, to fix that? That is, I think, the most pressing question right now is uh, how, how do we address this? And uh, the evidence is really mixed right now. And uh, so, you know, unfortunately, I can't say, oh, just go do, you know, these five steps and you'll be fine. Uh, And, you know, it's interesting because there have been uh, some, including the former U.S. Surgeon General, who in essence um, have compared this to uh, a health crisis. And so when we think about other kinds of uh, issues, um, particularly public health issues, and uh, we don't necessarily have uh, good solutions for those either. So, uh, you know, for instance, we've got, um, you know, what some people are calling an obesity epidemic or an opioid epidemic. And... In essence, we've got these really important problems that are very complex. And so there's not going to be a simple solution. And and in fact, we know that the cause of loneliness is not the same for everyone because loneliness is a subjective experience. And in particular, um, uh, many define it as a discrepancy between one's desired level of connection and one's actual level of connection. And so that can vary from person to person. And for some, it may be more related to, uh, you know, uh, uh, having to some kind of life transition, they've had to move, um, or some kind of, you know, starting a new school or um, having to make new friends. For others, it could be um, having to deal with a health situation or losing someone really important in their lives. But the, the, the key is that um, because there are different uh, causes of, of, of loneliness, uh, it's, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. Um, we're going to have to recognize the, and, and address those different kinds of causes. Now, there may be thematic types of of risk factors, and in fact, they've identified uh, several risk factors among older adults. And 
most of the research is in older adults, um, and most of the attention has been in older adults. And so one uh, important challenge that we face now is helping to recognize some of those risk factors in, in um, adolescents and younger adults uh, so that we can address those as well. We're going to have to take a short break. When we come back, I, I do have a, an email that's been sent in by a person who is a millennial talking about uh, her own experience just a year or two out of college. And I think it's really in, really an interesting, um, interesting message, and I want to get reaction from our panelists on that. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. And we are talking today about loneliness and isolation. Um, there was a study recently that finds nearly found nearly half of Americans suffer from feelings of loneliness and isolation, and that it's not just elder, the elderly or people who are retired. It's Generation Z and the millennials, people from 18 to 22 and people from 23 to 27, scored higher on this UCLA loneliness scale than the average American. So that's our topic today. Amy Gonzalez, an assistant professor in the IU Media School, is in the studio, as is Nancy Stockton, the director of IU Counseling and Psychological Services. And Julianne Holt-Lundstedt is joining us from uh, Brigham Young University. She's in Salt Lake City today. She's a professor of psychology at Brigham Young. You can join us on the show by calling 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Before I took a break, I mentioned this email that came in to us this morning, actually, and uh, it's from a person who graduated from um, she's a recent, she didn't say it's IU, but I'm assuming it was from IU, class of 2016. She said that uh, she's been in touch with one close friend from college, and they talk again and again about how they're having a really tough time. Uh, they feel extremely isolated, and they're having a difficult time post-grad. Uh, they aren't alone, uh, and, and they aren't alone. It seems so many of their classmates are having that kind of a time, too. Um, so she said she wanted to mention the topic of friendship, found it increasingly and often painfully difficult to make friends. Even when I was in college, there was a, a sense of business that, my, that her peers had, no time for friends, just work. Now being out of school, it's completely isolating because even as I and my friend try to make new friends, we find ourselves feeling like we are the only ones invested in trying to make relationships. I often wish for a day where I could could be seated at a table with a group of friends and talk face-to-face -face without phones or anything. Just good conversation. It feels like it's so hard for young people to do that. Um, and then just one or two other points. Young people these days are focused on themselves, she says. Social media is an obvious example, but it's also just the fact that we have put pressure on ourselves to be something after graduation. Um, and then she goes on and on. So I just want to get some reaction to that. Nancy? Well, it's a, 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 poignant, a poignant kind of question for sure. Uh, 
several things. Um, it, it's not uncommon for graduating seniors to, to come to CAPS with various kinds of anxieties. And I think one of the things our staff tries to do is to get the student thinking not just about the job that he or she's going to and how that's going to be managed, but how are they going to manage the whole move? What, what kinds of things are they doing in advance to help them make friends, to, uh, to, to get some structure in their lives in, in, a, in a new city? Um, so that's, that, that's a kind of general advice. I had one specific um, comment to the email when, when she said, and I think she's right, that it seems like everybody is focused on, on themselves, the focus on self. I think an excellent thing for, for people in that kind of situation to do is try to focus on others. You know, what, what kind of volunteer work they could find where, where there's, they're, they're not thinking about how somebody is reacting to me or do they like me or that, but thinking on this, you know, this, this, this task, if you will, is really important to me. I want to do this kind of volunteer work. And I think that can help, help, can re, help reduce social anxiety, help reduce loneliness. Mm-hmm. That that would be part of my answer, but it's a complex question for mm-hmm. sure. Right, Julianne or Amy, have any reaction to what you heard? Only that personally, I remember that being the hardest time <laughs> yeah. of my life too. I think that's not to in any way diminish her observation that the fact that phones are at the table or anything um, can make this worse, but just that I sympathize because that's just a really hard time of life, and I think sometimes we tend to think that. Loneliness is somehow a 21st century, you know, side effect of technology or something, and it, you know, and it's not. And and you're trying to figure out who you are and what you what you want out of the world. So she does ask if there's a turning point. Yes, yes, it will get better. Mm-hmm. It will get better. <laughs> Julianne, any uh, thoughts? Yeah, um, you know, I think every one of us can think of a time where and particularly in that transition um you know it is such a difficult time and um you know i think most of us can say yes it gets better um uh um but you know in trying to just think about uh and and think about the question as well as adding to what's been said already uh, I do want to um, echo the recommendation to uh, get involved and volunteer. There's, um, it, it can often be very difficult to, if, if you're waiting for others to reach out to you, um, and, but if you can look for others that may need your help, um, that may need a friend, um, uh, that can be incredibly powerful. In fact, there's data to suggest that providing support uh, is, has stronger effects than receiving support. Um, and so this, this may have a powerful effect. But one of the, the uh, points that she made, I thought, was also really tapped into some of the debate around technology. Uh, so uh, with rising rates of loneliness and isolation among younger adults. Uh, you know, there are some that, in essence, are, are saying that it's all, you know, related to technology. Uh, but others have argued that it may also, or, you know, either as, as an alternative or, or another potential factor may be this high pressure to achieve. And that uh, kids are uh, overscheduled, um, overpressured, so that uh, you know from the time they're young, uh, they're involved in so many extracurricular activities that they don't have time to make friends. They don't have time for just free play, uh, and that there's been such a focus on that that these skills haven't even really developed. Uh, and, and making these kinds of transitions even harder. Now, of course, these are just hypotheses, um, but it is something to really uh, consider. And uh, in, in fact, others have also argued that this 
this doesn't just apply to young adults, that it applies across the ages with uh, Americans working more hours, uh, that we, in essence, are, are suffering from a lack of work-life balance uh, that doesn't allow us to foster and nurture relationships uh, um, to the extent that we might otherwise have when we're spending more time at work than we are um, with our own, you know, friends and family. Uh, and, and so, you know, this is something to, uh, you know, think about as, as we try and, and address this issue. So can you just talk a little bit more, Julianne, about this a link between loneliness and the workplace? Um, so there's been some increasing interest in looking at this. Um, so, for instance, uh, Vivek Murthy, the uh, former U.S. Surgeon General, recently wrote a piece in the Harvard Business Review about loneliness in the workplace, even um, loneliness among CEOs. There is a lot of concern even among health professionals um, and those that are in caring professions uh, that for instance, um, physicians uh, with a high degree of burnout uh, are, uh, in essence, um, spending less time uh, outside of, of work that uh, much of their work is done in isolation, uh, even from others uh, that they work with, uh, and that this seems to be having uh, effects not only on health, but also lost productivity. Um, uh, there's data linking it to absenteeism and presenteeism um, that, of course, has uh, significant economic costs as well. Mm-hmm. Our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. We have a question that came in from our producer, actually. He says, for Amy, can technology help us achieve more of a work-life balance? Mm, that's a really good question mm-hmm. and a big question. The answer is yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tend to um, be an advocate of a particular um, idea called, uh, which uh, amplification, I used the word earlier. Um, there's a researcher in informatics, Toyama is his last name, at um, University of Michigan, who poses that uh, technology amplifies human forces. That's it. It's pretty simple. And so, um, but I think it's a really elegant way to appreciate that when we throw technology at a problem, it's not going to universally solve it. On the contrary, um, it may be, is just going to make certain, and it does, right? There, all of us can think of, at least anecdotally, ways that technology m- makes us work more, <laughs> allows us to work more, makes us work more. It's a fine line. Um, and I'm sure there are other ways that we could imagine um, trying to use technology to, you know, I mean, I have more flexibility in my schedule, and so, um, you know, I can... <laughs> check email on the way to pick up my son. <laughs> Don't tell anyone, right? But then that increases my chance of getting in a car accident. Um, I'm outing my, my dangerous driving. But, but then that gives me more flexibility to spend time with people that I love, right? So it, it, I think it's a double-edged sword, and I think, I think technology always is um, in, in so many ways. The idea maybe that people are telecommuting more, I'm sure, is, is mm-hmm. part of what she's asking, too. Yeah, and technology's enabling us to do that. How many people? I mean, I don't, I don't know what the numbers are. Angela, my, our producer, might, but just the idea that so many people who used to be maybe chained to a desk at work can now do that. Absolutely, home. yeah. That's why I've heard. Yeah, a lot of people are all are also um, working. Yeah, so working, but then that also means right that that perhaps people are actually traveling more because they can too. Right, so you have a job. I've read that people. Yeah, right. Their, their likelihood of. Um, spending X number of days. My father does this actually in his um, post-retirement career. He spends a week or, or he spends two or three weeks at home, but then he travels 12 hours away and then spends a week there working because he can. But does that mean that, so he has the luxury of continuing to work and being at home, but probably if he didn't have that luxury, he would just be at home, right? So I, I don't know, is that good or bad? Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked a lot about um, about 
millennials and and uh, you know people who are younger. We've talked about college students a lot, but from your research, um, both Amy and, and Julianne, have you seen anything? And Nancy, I guess from your from your experience too, that would um, delineate between socio socioeconomic. Um, Groups in terms of this loneliness factor, and we we had when uh, we had the the email that we read, we talked about this. Everybody needs to be something. This these are post college, you know, these people who who are in their post college years. There are a lot of people who are in a different um, just socioeconomic category. You found differences in in those areas. Um, one, this is a narrower answer than I think yeah. you're looking for, but uh -huh. one thing that came to my, my mind of, with regard to college students, if um, competition and competition enhanced by uh, social media, electronic devices, um, certainly plays a role in the development of something like eating disorders, a problem like eating disorders. And there does seem to be less competition to be thin in students who come from somewhat lower socioeconomic uh, uh, backgrounds. So in, in some ways, uh, there are certainly problems, and you know, many problems associated with coming from a lower so socioeconomic uh, background. But it is protective in, in some ways, too, against certain kinds of problems, certain mm -hmm. kinds of human miseries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, know, I noticed, Amy, in your uh, a short bio I read, it says that you're particularly interested in, in the phenomena, various phenomena uh, in working with disadvantaged communities. Is, is this an area that you've studied at all? I haven't looked at loneliness. Mostly that work is looking at the ways that technology can um, empower mm -hmm. um, yeah, marginalized communities. So I have work that looks at how um, People with less education, um, people of color, are more likely to use the internet to broaden their social networks, um, and that's presumably to compensate for offline segregation away from resources. So, the hegemonic group, right, the the people in power um, in this country, whites, people with more education, are more likely to just talk to the same people online that they talk to offline, but um, people of color are. Um, more likely to talk to people of a different race or out try to, to, to meet new people online. Um, but that's a, I don't have, I personally, and I, I've looked at kind of that intersection of technology and marginalization in a few different ways, but not with respect to loneliness. I don't know if Julianne, you know of the literature on how, I, I mean, I, I know a little bit there's literature on the ways that um, collectivist cultures um, tend to have right more protective social infrastructure for things like loneliness. Um, Can you define collectivist culture? culture? Yeah. So like I'm thinking like Latinos in the US, um, for example, Asians, especially um, co co racial ethnic groups that I know, for example, are often have less access to, to wealth or, or social you know mm -hmm. resources, but have these other um, kind of social cultural buffers that sometimes help, I think particularly with respect to loneliness anyway. Um, but again, I don't know, I don't know that works um, very well. It's not exactly my area of expertise. I don't know about you, Julianne, and your work on loneliness and health, if you see well, differences. Yeah, we haven't seen much of uh, an effect of socioeconomic status, although there is, of course, some evidence to suggest uh, that it, it you know, may have an impact because, of course, we know socioeconomic status uh, certainly um, uh, provide is associated with better health outcomes because of greater access to uh, resources. But um, you know, as mentioned, those from uh, collectivist society with such an emphasis on group and and family uh, that um, that can uh, be a protect, protective factor. And, you know, one interesting thing that, uh, that is, is found is that despite higher socioeconomic staffing uh, linked to generally uh, better health outcomes, uh, it's, um, 
it's only through the you know higher SES that we can live alone, and mm-hmm. the rates of living alone are now mm-hmm. the highest in recorded history. And living alone not only carries the 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 same significant risk um, as loneliness in terms of risk for premature mortality, but it also puts you at greater risk for loneliness. So. Of course, just because you're living alone doesn't mean you're lonely, but it does put you at greater risk for loneliness and puts you at greater risk um, for premature mortality. And so it's interesting that uh, greater socioeconomic status also can uh, potentially provide the resources that you would normally need to depend on others for. So instead of relying on each other um, for many of our basic needs, um, you know, banding together, um, we, you know, through economic resources, we can often do these things on our own. We can, we can order our groceries online. We can do all sorts of things without having to rely on other people, and that might actually potentially um, have have some detrimental effects. Yeah. We have a question our producer sent. Um, it's for Julianne. Are the health effects of loneliness psychological or physiological? Uh, both. <laughs> so, in essence, uh, my 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 work focuses uh, more broadly on how our social connections influence health and longevity, and, and conversely, how lacking social connections puts us at risk. And so, loneliness is one indicator of a lack of social connections. It's more of a subjective. Uh, that feeling of alone compared to actually objectively being alone. Uh, both put us at risk, um, but loneliness is that psychological state. Um, it's a very distressing uh, state, which uh, has uh, uh, profound effects on our physiology that is linked to health-related biomarkers that put us at risk. So it can have a direct influence on cardiovascular, neuroendocrine, and immune functioning. Um, and, and so this, uh, through these uh, biological processes, uh, this can, can put us at greater risk for chronic illnesses. Um, so for instance, it's, um, chronic loneliness is associated with chronic inflammation. We know that inflammation is related to a variety of chronic illnesses. Um, and, and then this, of course, um, uh, the more chronic it is, the, the more impact that it has on our overall health. We've talked a lot about just um, just people being more connected and how that contributes to, to loneliness between elderly folks and then also younger generations. But are there just generational differences that are at play here and that could be contributing to this? Um, Nancy, do you want to? Uh, generational differences in terms of responses to loneliness. Sure, and I, I think just the way we the way we live our lives too, as a young person versus as an older person. Um, one thing that that comes to my mind, I think younger younger people, millennials, uh, that that feel lonely are more likely to actively isolate themselves, not get out. Older people may feel, you know, I can't. There's, there's forces pre- sort of preventing me from getting out. But young people do it to themselves uh, more, and there may be more guilt uh, associated that, with that. That's one thing that, that occurs to me when, when you ask that question. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm going to... I'm going to follow up with a, with a different question. We only have a couple minutes to go. And I just want to, I want to get this one in, Sarah. So our political um, realities today, there's so much divisiveness. There's so much anger out there. Does this, is this adding to this loneliness and isolation? Or is it because people can find like-minded groups politically maybe somehow filling a void? Julianne, I want to ask you first. You know, that's a, a great question because I think there's certainly a degree of social divisiveness that everyone feels regardless of what side of the political spectrum you're on. Um, and uh, so 
I, I do think that that may have have an influence. And while people may be able to, you know, put themselves in silos, uh, that in essence, um, we have evidence that that uh, a diversity of relationships, meaning a diversity of roles, a diversity of kinds of resources that we can draw on, uh, is associated with um, several outcomes, um, including better immune functioning. Um, and so this is, you know, it's really important for us to have a variety of kinds of of relationships in in our lives, and uh, so I, it, it really, um, it, I, I think it may have something, uh, some impact that I think we're all feeling beyond just that interpersonal connection, but a lack of connection to community, mm-hmm. um, a lack of connection to um, you know the broader. Uh, society if we feel like we are not, um, our views are not accepted, are not valued, uh, and, and indeed uh, connection has been uh, conceptualized in, in a variety of ways, including these broader uh, senses of belonging and, and connection. We have just a few seconds to go if anybody wants to, to join in, but... I think we're going to let Julianne have the last word. That sounds great. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Julianne Holt-Lundstad and uh, Amy Gonzalez and Nancy Stockton for being here with us today. For producer Angela Batista, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.